Podcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the podcast. Today's guest is Kara Miller, a correspondent for the Boston Globe, where she also writes the Big Ideas column. Kara has worked across radio, TV, and print for the past 15 years. She hosted and served as the executive editor of the public radio program called Innovation Hub, which she launched. She's also taught at Babson College and the University of Massachusetts. Welcome, Kara. Thanks for having me, Marjorie. Kara writes a lot about education, particularly higher ed and admissions policies. So she's here today to give us her take on the new research report called Diversifying Society's Leaders, the Determinants and Causal Effects of Admission to Highly Selective Private Colleges. The authors are Raj Chetty and David Deming from Harvard and John Friedman from Brown. Basically, the report surmises that the nation's most prestigious private colleges tend to favor applicants from high-income families over less affluent ones, even when they have comparable academic qualifications. So this is no surprise to most of us, right? but the report... Report does say that this imbalance has major implications, such as the fact that graduates from elite schools dominate most leadership positions in the country and make the most money. So, Kara, we are so excited to have you here to talk about your take on this. And I might start with just asking you a little bit about why you think this is such an important discussion to be having right now. I mean, I think people are always captivated by situations they perceive as unfair right? That should not be this way. We should try to rectify it in some way. I think for many years, we've been having a discussion in this country about the divide between the rich, not just the rich and the poor, but really the rich and everybody else and how much more access they get to things. And so I think people are very tuned in to that kind of discussion and people are very interested in it. And I also think the issue of who ends up in the Senate or who ends up in the Supreme Court, which, you know, Raj Chetty and his and his colleagues found is like disproportionately people who went to these what they call Ivy Plus schools. So it's like the Ivy League plus University of Chicago, Duke, MIT uh, and Stanford, that there's like a disproportionate representation in places like the Supreme Court and the Senate, though, not limited to those places. So I think it, it, it sort of taps into a lot of pre-existing concerns I think people have. Yeah, yeah, particularly also in higher ed, considering the Supreme Court ruling against affirmative action, it's sort of a new world now. And I think that fortunately, there's a lot of good debate about that, which is, and again, I think your op-ed that you had recently done for the Globe on this report adds to that debate, and I think it's all healthy. I'd like to talk about that op-ed and also your perspective on this research, right? You say that this in some ways, and I, I think this is actually such an interesting take, in many ways it gives these elite schools even more clout, right? By making it appear that they're the only ones worth pursuing for high achievers. So what is wrong with this narrative and why should we care? I'll just start off by saying that I truly believe this is an endlessly interesting and endlessly complex topic with no right answers. This is, to me, this is not a black and white issue. This is not something where there's a clear right and wrong. It's not like that. So I'll tell you a little bit about the Globe piece. I have felt for a long time 
And this is to take nothing away from Ivy League schools or other schools in that sort of echelon that our sort of endless debate about who deserves to go to Princeton elevates Princeton above so many other worthy schools in a way that I think is not right. Why Princeton and not Pomona and not Carleton and not Rice and not the University of Missouri? Like, why? Again, I think Princeton is a fantastic school and it's fantastic for many people. But I think we do ourselves a disservice when we argue that Harvard is the paragon of virtue, that the decisions they make are the decisions, that the people who they admit are the chosen people. I think that's wrong. I think it's much more complicated. Like there's a lot of different people out there and there's a lot of different schools. And Harvard's just not the right school for everybody, nor is Princeton, nor is Rice, nor is Pomona. And I, I wish we were a little bit more like people should find their place rather than like these are the schools and everybody should go there if they can get in. Right. No, I know. It makes you you make a great point about that. But just to push back on their point about the disproportionate leadership aspect, and I wonder if this isn't basically, what does this say about society? The fact that the enormous advantage that students who go to these elite schools gain throughout their life in terms of their dominance in the public and private arenas. Is that troubling? And should we be taking something more away from that, despite your good point about just focusing more attention on these schools? So there's so many things to say there. I would say, you know, in in an ideal, like platonic situation, should Harvard admit as many legacy applicants being people whose like parents went to Harvard? Probably not. Should they distribute things out a little bit more? Probably. Should they should they admit fewer people whose parents can donate a wing to the library? Probably. No. Okay, so then you can look at it from different perspectives. One is, is Harvard likely to say, you know, we don't need that library wing, so we're just going to say no to this billionaire? I would say no. They're unlikely to do that. So I, I would say that trying to convince them is going to take a lot of effort, and I don't know if we'll, we would be able to do that. But then I think the other thing is how much, how much success, for example, does this Ivy Plus, the, you know, these 12 schools that Raj Chetty et al., like that they looked down at, how much advantage do they confer? Well, in fact, people make similar amounts on average to people who go to other really selective and excellent schools that are not in this Ivy Plus group. The difference, as you indicate, is in these kind of elite places, like these bastions of elitism. So like the Senate and the Supreme Court and places like Goldman Sachs and stuff. It is not quite clear to me, though though Chetty may have more to say on this and I may have, have missed it. It's not quite clear to me when it comes to a place like Goldman Sachs, for example, or becoming CEO of a company. If it is the actual act of going to the Ivy League school, like let's say, you know, you're a normal person middle class, whatever, you land at Yale. And the, and the four years of being there change your trajectory so much that you become a CEO who makes $20 million a year. Or does Yale go around looking for people who are already plugged in to the wealthy and elite in this world? And those people, when they exit Yale, exit back into the wealthy and elite networks that they were already a part of and then become the CEOs. That's unclear to me. I do think like with this with the Supreme Court, no, it is pretty clear, you know, like somebody like Sonia Sotomayor, I believe went to Princeton 
undergraduate. Elena Kagan went to Princeton undergraduate. I don't think those people come from privileged backgrounds, but I also think you can pretty honestly say that Harvard, Princeton, they don't seem to be turning their graduates. I would be worried if everybody who came out of those sorts of institutions were cookie cutter, except that mm-hmm. Sonia Sotomayor and Tom Cotton both went to Ivy League schools and they don't seem to have come out cookie cutter at all. Chuck Schumer and Tom Cotton both went to Harvard particularly. They don't seem similar at all. They're about as different as you can get. So. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly like what is what are the ramifications? You know, them both have spending spent four years crossing Harvard Yard. I'm not sure. Right, right. It was it's interesting, Kara. It's sort of the bigger question may be why are we obsessed yes. with this elite nature of these schools and this constant journey to to for achievement at the absolute highest rung when honestly i think about all of the successful people i know yeah who went to either state schools or they went to obscure colleges some didn't go to college at all i think that what does this say i'm trying to get at sort of the heart of your argument what does this say about the way we are judging achievement in this country I mean, I think that, I think in some sense, there's been a conversation about U.S. News and World Report, right, and their ranking of colleges for a long time. I think we love lists. I think we love to simplify things. And I think that something like U.S. News and World Report, a set of rankings, allows us to do that kind of simplification. But if you just sit down and you think about like how U.S. News and World Report ranks liberal arts colleges, so not not the universities where people, which also have grad students, but like these smaller schools, the Amherst and the Williams and the Pomonas and the Harvey Muds and so on. And I mean, when I just rattled off a few schools and I could add Bryn Mawr, whatever. I mean, anybody who has visited those schools, who knows anything about those schools, do we really believe Bryn Mawr, Pomona, Williams? That's all the same. They're all like the same school. I mean, you've got schools out in the midst of like the rolling hills of Massachusetts, not really anywhere near anything else. You've got schools in Southern California that are part of a consortium. You've got schools that are limited to women. And I'm just picking schools off the top of my head. These are not comparable places. And I wish we thought a little bit more about individual people. I partially say this because of my own experience. I feel like I did not think nearly enough when I was going through the college process about what was right for me versus like this notion that there is like an absolute hierarchy and we should all subscribe, we should all agree that that is the absolute hierarchy for everybody, no matter how different those people are. Well, absolutely. And, you know, what we know about from the work we do at at MCI is that the whole fit in terms of your values, your purpose in life is so affected by the experiences that you have in college. And so the that bad match or a match that was made sort of out of pressure can actually be quite damaging to you in your life. So I think there are, I couldn't agree more, there are so many variables that go into choosing a college and seeking to be admitted to colleges that that is complex, as you pointed out. I wanted to ask you a couple of things that you pointed on your article. One was, and I know you have been a professor, right? Yeah. At UMass. Mm-hmm. You make a great case that I hadn't thought of before about how difficult it, it actually is to become a professor 
And we don't think about that. We all think, oh, well, the professors at these elite schools are amazing, but so are so many others. And it is a tough position to get, right? So talk a little bit more about that. I thought that was a great point. So it's a it's a very, very tough position to get. So professors at Ivy League schools are amazing. But what's happened on the PhD side, and this is true across the board. I used to just think it was true in the humanities where I got my doctorate. But then as my, my husband has a doctorate in chemistry, as I met people on that side, I realized, oh, my gosh, this is true really uh, pretty much across the board, which is that we for decades have been over minting PhDs. And so what's happened is simply that you have way too many PhDs for the number of open tenure track jobs that exist at universities. And so there is just tremendous competition to get physics professorships that open up or English professorships that open up. And remember, those are very good jobs. People stay in them for 30 or 40 years often, so they don't open up that much. So absolutely, when you just, I was doing this the other day, partially because I was writing the papers of the Globe, I just picked the University of Kentucky and started looking at where the people in the English department had gone and gotten their PhDs. And, you know, I, I didn't look as much at where they were undergrads. But it read like Duke and Chicago and Harvard. I mean, it's very, very hard to get these jobs. So the notion that, gee, if I don't go to Dartmouth, I'm not going to get a good professor. That's just not right. I mean, the people are truly amazing across the board because these are such hard jobs to get. And so the scholarship that people have done is amazing. The publishing they've done is amazing. And many of them all went to the same schools, no matter what school you choose like no matter what college or university you choose to look at where people got their doctorates, they went to like excellent schools. So I want to bring us back to the equity issue, which I yeah. think this is why this, this report has gotten so much attention and, and for really good reasons. And I think particularly now that so much is being talked about in terms of how to continue to even the playing field and continue to leverage higher education's ability to increase social mobility for people. That's the bur a burning question right now in higher ed. And I think this report makes us think about that in different ways. So what should we be thinking about in terms of how to increase equity around admissions? You make a really good case about it. Admissions offices are just people, but the implications yeah. of what they do have are, are enormous for society. What are some other directions we should be going in or where should we be putting our attention? First of all, it's very important to remember that the number of people we're talking about when we have this debate about, say, the top 1% at Harvard, that's 300 people a year. 20 million people are in college this year in, in the US. You know, and so I'm not saying those 300 don't matter, right? But it's like, it's like a drop in a very, very, very large lake. And I mean, I think if we have energy to spend, I think making sure that, that people are deeply engaged by the work they do in both K through 12 and college, part of the thing that Chetty found in terms that's sort of one of the statistics that sparked an outrage is that when you look at the 1% versus the middle class, for people with similar SAT scores, people in the 1% are about two times as likely to attend as people in the middle class. 
Some of that is due to admissions and some of that is due to that they matriculate at higher rates and apply at higher rates, the richer people. I think another thing to think about, part of the reason that this happens is that colleges have felt pressure for some time to dissociate themselves a little bit from standardized test scores. Is like many schools over the last several years have said, we don't even want to subscribe to standardized test scores anymore. It reduces people to a number. So they've tried to sort of diversify away from that and say, well, no, it matters to us if you play the oboe. Well, it matters to us if you're an athlete. It matters to us if you volunteer at the soup kitchen. The problem with that turns out to be rich kids are have access to those things from volunteering to playing sports to playing the oboe more than everybody else. So I would say beefing up the K through 12 experience for everybody would be that's where I would put my attention. Like, yes, do rich people get their kids access to coding camp and robotics after school and whatever? Yes, they do. Do Would it be amazing if we could democratize that a little bit more and get other people access to coding camp and robotics after school? I think so. Not only would they be better able to compete, but much more important, they would be at, have access and have an understanding of coding and robotics. They would hopefully find something that they loved and cared about. And then it doesn't matter whether you're going to the Pomona or the University of Missouri or Princeton, because if you know you love robotics or you know like, oh, I love math or, oh, I'm really into physics or, oh, I love to fix things, that can help shape your life. I mean, we want to be helping people find the things they love. And I'm just not sure. I think that happens a lot more for wealthy kids because their parents can buy them so many, you know, like afternoon things or summer things. They can find that thing. I wish we did that more for everybody else. So what you're saying is instead of us worrying about the elites, let's focus on bringing other people into those opportunities, particularly children and young adults, right? I, I think, yes. I think it, the best way to change lives is to change children's lives, right? That they are just starting out. They're trying to find the thing they love. And so I think changing their lives, increasing their opportunities, increasing their exposure, as I was saying, to different things is really important. I, I think, honestly, and I'm not saying like we should be proud of it or anything, but I, I am saying that the fact that Princeton accepts a lot of one percenters, they have connections that I would argue if they can attend Princeton, it's not going to matter a whole lot. They're going to figure it out. They're going to they're gonna still live a privileged life via some other route. I think our focus should not be necessarily like, yeah, okay, maybe we could try to keep 20 or 50 of them from going to Princeton. I guess we could try to do that. But I think much more effective would be to say, there's millions of kids who aren't that engaged with school. What could we do to make their lives, make their education more fulfilling, more enriching, and give them that kind of satisfaction and hook and opportunity that you get if you're wealthy. Yeah, that was a terrific end to a very interesting conversation, Kara. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Kara writes regularly for the Boston Globe. I love her column, and I hope you come back to the podcast soon. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I, you know, I could talk about this for three hours. It's such, a, it's such a fascinating topic. Thanks so much. This has been The Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. 
And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.